0: and welcome to this week's episode of bat chat with matt and will a batman ranking podcast where each week my co-host will nevin and i dig into three batman stories discuss them and rank them on our big list thus creating a giant list of batman stories from best
1: to worst will what's going on tonight maddie lasers i got big career news big 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 career news all right all right so i know a couple of weeks ago a couple of months ago i told you that I was gonna quit my job, become a full-time podcaster. That did not work out for me. Uh, So I'm gonna make another transition. I'm going to become a professional Loodle player. Now, let me explain what Loodle is. Loodle is the profane version of Wordle. And that's really popular right now uh, in the past this first week of february or second week of february i understand this show will be coming out sometime this summer so this is going to be pretty dated but that's okay that's okay i'm here to drive the show into a ditch and i thought i need to i need to practice my skills so i'm going to i'm going to work on yesterday's loodle as the uh, as the show goes on and i'm going to i'm going to start with my first word chode let's see how that goes mm I've got one O uh, in the wrong place. So this is going to take some time, Matt. Uh, I'll, I'll let you progress with the show and, and I'll, I'll check in. I'll check in as things go. We'll be ready for those updates as we move along. Before we get into the rest of the show and introduce
0: our special guest, we have a new Patreon backer to thank. Uh, fellow writer at comics xf tony thornley is our newest tim drake tier backer thank you welcome Tony. tony and speaking of patreon backers the dick grayson tier allows you to not just pick an episode theme but to come on the show and today we have our first dick grayson tier backer taking advantage of this perk say hi to podcaster at x for podcast josh wheel hey josh how's it going tonight fantastic Uh, This is
2: great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you guys for setting this up and uh, having this awesome tier available for people like me to take advantage of.
1: Well,
0: we're thankful for you backing us and we're glad to have you. I do want to start with the question I like to ask all of our guests. What's some of your earliest interactions with Batman as a character?
2: So I remember, I think one of the first
0: uh, comics I have
2: is a uh, Batman issue from the Jason Todd era that I remember being very, very young and something that being out with my father and he just went into a gas station and came back and tossed me a Batman and Robin comic, which I have since gone back. I, I don't remember the issue number off the top of my head. I want to say it's around the 470s, but I, I put some effort in about 10 years ago and um, went back and tracked it down and I do have it in a long box. If that doesn't match up to the Jason Todd's then I'm just not remembering off the moment. But um,
0: It's like uh, Jason dies in 430 something. For, death okay. in the Family is 428 to, 428 to 431. That, that doesn't matter and I'm not here to correct people. And I It's got to be like... just before that then. I think
2: it's just before that, but I yes, that was. A, but most of mine is through as a kid, reading the Tim Drake Robin series by Chuck Dixon, which has an incredibly special place in just for me growing up. The Carl Castle Superboy, the Mark Wade um, Impulse, and the Chuck Dixon Robin were three books that were incredibly important to me and made all of 90s like DC just continue. I, I look back on that as like the golden age of DC as as now I've expanded as an adult and have read through so many different eras. Um, just an amazing entry place and those stories and as a young reader with a model like Tim Drake as a character, just fantastic. Um, I know that I think all of us in this room have some, you know, philosophical differences from uh, Charles Dixon today. But the, the the early Robin issues
1: stand. I think Dixon's a swell guy. I,
2: I uh, met him at Con. He was very genuine and he, he signed my uh, favorite issue of Robin for me and we talked about it. And, you know, he thought it was a shame that they don't do more to try to make things mainline books accessible to kids today. Which but of most Robin. of the fans lined up to him. There were a lot of hardcore, uh, I want to say Transformer fans sure. that were there lined up to see him.
0: Which issue of Robin? I'm curious. 42.
2: It's it, uh, on the cover, it says, like, and then Rage. And it has Ariana. Yes. Behind yes. Behind her, and it's this issue where she was going through all this and he managed to kind of be... The, it just, it it really... It struck a chord for me as like a young, like, I was about 13 at the time. They're like perfect age reader reading it. And it just, yeah, it it resonated deeper than I think anything I was getting from any of the other books.
0: Yeah, that, that cover is absolutely stuck in my head. I know that book. But so you came when we asked for, you know, what you wanted to do. You came to us with two stories of Batman's Days Training to Be Batman. So I, I threw a third one in, and there we go. We're going to start off with the two you came with, and then we'll end the night with the third. The first story is Blood Secrets. This is Detective Comics Volume One, Annual Number Two. The writers were Mark Wade and Brian Augustin, Pencils by Valsamax, Inks by Michael Baer, Colors by Adrienne Roy. Letters by Todd Klein, edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover date is September of 1989. This story takes place mostly in flashback with a framing sequence of Batman in the present. It tells a story of Batman's encounter with Harvey Harris, a detective, as they investigated a series of murders in Huntsville, Alabama. We'll get to that second little bit about Huntsville in a second, but first... We've been hard on Brian Augustine in previous episodes and we'll get some more, but I do want to acknowledge that Augustine passed away within the last week as we're recording this and our thoughts go out to his loved ones. But this story is set in Huntsville, Alabama. Will, what can you tell
1: me about Huntsville, Alabama? All right. So let's, let's talk about that. Mark Wade is originally from Alabama. So I think that's where we get the Alabama connection here. It doesn't say specifically Huntsville, Alabama, but it makes a reference to Birmingham. Birmingham being the big city. The detective here is working in Birmingham, but gets called back to where he's from, Huntsville. Huntsville is portrayed as a tiny town, population 1865. Oh, I see what you did there really clever but in actuality huntsville is now the largest city in uh, in alabama the metropolitan area is smaller than birmingham you know when you count up all of the suburbs around birmingham it's larger but within the city proper it is the largest city we've got a regional airport here uh, lots of defense contractors this is where nasa is here in alabama so this is not the small town that is portrayed here, but they do certainly share the same name.
0: Just figured when something you know is set right around where one of us lives, it's probably a good place to discuss it. If we ever have anything set in and around Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Also, one other thing before we get into this story specifically, Will, I assume you read this digitally? This time? Yes, it did.
1: Josh, did you have the floppy handy? Oh, he showed oh, yeah, it up right now. Of,
0: yeah, Looks like I, a I,
1: pristine copy there.
0: Sadly, with my collection in the state it's in, I read most of these digitally because I have a problem, you know, just having to dig them out. Did it feel like the transfer on this one was not great? And did you read it on Comixology or Infinite? I, I guess it doesn't matter. It's going to be the same transfer.
1: Yeah, Comixology. And, and I'll say this having read uh, a couple of the uh, uh, the Legends arcs here very recently. I think this transfer is better than those because the legends just seem to be straight page scans and they don't hold up as well. This at least seems to be some, if not a purely digital file, then some file that has been cleaned up at some point. So yeah, I didn't notice anything especially bad uh, with this, but it does seem to be a little bit better than those uh, legends. I wonder if maybe it's not
0: so much that the transfer is bad. I would love to look at a, my physical copy of it because there's a couple of thi- a couple of panels that I saw some miscolorings and I was wondering if that was the transfer or if that was... Some... Uh, there's, some mixed, there's some miscolorings here in the OG, but
2: I, I wouldn't want to read this one digitally to be honest. It's got that old newspaper print with the forest feel. It's, it's got some muted colors. It really adds to the the kind of in the heat of the night feel that, you know, this story has for me with Harvey Harris. And I personally, I read so much digitally. In pandemic, at some point, I just had to stop. I try to read as little as possible digitally if I can, because I spend all day on screens now. When I break to do my reading, I want paper copies of, of whether it's books, comics, trades, as often as possible if I can. So I was I was worth the effort to dig it out of a long box for me.
0: I wish I could. My long boxes are all sort of piled up because I am eventually, as as you've all said, and as anytime when Will does his impression of me has to bring up, am working on eventually getting my garage set with insulation and drywall and racks, so I can put up my, you know, hundred and something long boxes and sort them all. But at this point, for Bat Chat, I just have to go digitally because otherwise I'd be spending days going through the boxes to find the right one.
1: When we finally get to that million downloads, we'll put together a GoFundMe, raise money for Matt's garage, renovation, his comics library, make this dream come true. All right, before we get back on track, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chip in with uh, some, uh, some little updates here. Uh, so my first word, chode. Gave me that O out of place. I then went with twats. That gave me a T out of place. So I'm going to keep working. Okay. Harvey Harris
0: is not a new character. Not a character created for this series. He first appeared in a Silver Age story, Detective 226. A story that I did not write down the title, but when young Batman was Robin, it, it follows a similar sort of thread where... Bruce is disguising himself to learn the skills that he needs, but it has Bruce in a Robin costume establishing that that was a costume he already had an identity, which doesn't make sense. This was also something that was used in the somewhat legendary and Sadly forgotten Untold Legend of the Batman, a miniseries that came out in 1980 that tried to streamline all of the different aspects of Batman Batman's origin into one three issue miniseries that ended just a couple of years before, you know, crisis when all that went yeah. right out the window it was Len, it was Len Wein and John Len Wein on uh story and John Byrne on pencil on the first issue and then Jim Aparo inked issue one doing the pencils on two and three so it's a good book and it's one we're going to cover someday but yeah that, that was where I first encountered Harvey Harris this is a a mystery And I think as much of a hard time as we've given Augustine when it comes to the mysteries in Gotham by Gaslight and Master of the Future, this one works better. This one follows the points and is a little less obvious in its suspects.
1: And the conclusion is much more satisfying. Yeah. I mean,
2: detective stories are hard. Good detective stories that keep you guessing but make perfect sense in the end are not super common. I really like the way this one presented itself, um, especially going with the motif that's kind of wrapped up with the killer being the red herring, and then doubling back around for for a deeper wrap up that brought all the other threads and themes together really nice at the end. It, it's, a, it's a good, solid story. And it's one, you know, I first read this in 2010, where I was picking up a bunch of kind of like 90s annuals, some of the pulp stuff and year ones and good, solid, like Oversized single issue stories, yeah, it just it tells a really good complete story while also, you know, giving you that um, that nice kind of early Bruce unfinished product.
0: This is a Bruce who is nowhere near the end of his training. He is still very angry, and he doesn't have that rage reined in. And listen, I love the morrison era hyper competent batman too but so many writers since morrison have tried and I've, i think i've said this before have just continued to establish this almost perfect batman it makes me miss these stories where bruce is really fallible and boy howdy is he fallible in this story
2: and wade who is one of my personal favorite writers a large part of that is due to the impulse as a youth in the 90s, but um, even a ton of his other, he has done phenomenal arcs on a ton of other titles as well. But, you know, he does a really good job of stripping Bruce down here in a way of, you know, taking away some of those things that we know are character traits and allowing us to see them modeled in Harvey. So, you know, he's very specifically giving him this anger and impatience that are you know not really familiar to the character because he's going to learn the calm demeanor, the patience, these keys to his analytical detective work in this story. So we're going to kind of see how those, you know, rough edges get smoothed here. And it's, it's done, you know, Wade typically I feel like is an author that has a firm level of craft in what he's doing. Um, He doesn't throw as much stuff against the wall as say, you know, some other writers. So I always Get excited when I have a Mark Wade one, and, and this one. I was glad
0: that this one held up for me on second reading too. This also has one of the more a very striking cover. Brian Boland to begin with. I mean, you can you can't go wrong with Brian Boland art. But this shadowy Batman looming over what, while they never call them this, are clearly clan analogs i mean they call them in the yeah. book the paladins of the cross but it's like let's just call them as we seize them these guys are members of the klu klux klan
1: yeah and that 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 struck me as kind of a cowardly editorial note you know if you're gonna have that cover if you're going to have this gang of night riders it should be clan in uh, superman smashes the clan I know, you know, the original radio serial, they called it something slightly different. Nice Um, to the burning cross. Yeah, yeah. But that was when the Klan was a real organization that might come along and sue you for defamation or something. Uh, But at this time, the business organization side of the Klan is not there. So it just, it seems cowardly uh, to use the imagery, but to not stick the name to it. I've changed a little
2: on that as, and so, you know, Will, you're from Alabama, I'm down here in Florida. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed talking with other people from the North who come down is they're always surprised at how prevalent Confederate flags are. And that like the clan is real, that it's more of like a boogeyman fairy tale in the North. Whereas if you're still in the South, that it is a like, it's a real thing you might drive past. So I mean, I guess to me it didn't strike off as much not using the real world
0: clan, but I could see it either way. You'd be surprised some of the northern states where that kind of stuff. Yeah, my, my wife is from rural Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Believe me, I see plenty of Confederate flags when I go out and visit there.
1: Well, it, it is a, it's a symbol for racism. It's why there are, you know, Confederate flags at neo-Nazi rallies in Europe. Same reason why here there are Rhodesian flags at neo-Nazi rallies. Like, you know, it's a symbol. And the, the Confederate flag is, uh, is in this book. And, you know, it's appropriate as a, as a sign of racists. One other nitpicky thing that I had uh and and this is i think wade showing how he doesn't understand this small town that he's he's portraying i want to say i i looked his bio up some years ago i don't think he spent a lot of time in alabama i think like he was literally born here and then he got the fuck out which admittedly not a bad call uh on his family uh his family's part or his part but anyway this small town has a newspaper And the newspaper breaks the story of this, I think this fourth murder, there is no way that a newspaper of that size would have breaking news in a town of 1800 people. You're going to have a weekly newspaper and yeah, maybe, maybe the newspaper just happened to go to print after this fourth murder was discovered. But uh, as, as a journalism guy, as a guy familiar with small town Alabama newspapers that stuck out to me as really just kind of a, Oh, this is not how that would work in any situation ever. That was something that I wouldn't notice, but you know what? That's the same kind of thing where it's like
0: something is set in a theater. And it's like, there is no way you'd get that past equity. There's no (laughs) way that that is going to make it past equity. I guess we haven't really talked much about the actual plot here because this is Bruce going down to Alabama to find Harvey Harris who's this sort of legendary detective and they're investigating the deaths of these people who are being found strung up and bled and they're all of a sort of elder gentleman of a certain age and they're all pillars of this community and it's oh The thing that I love, Bruce Bruce is, of course, going by an alias. He's Frank Dixon. Eh? Eh? Get that one,
1: folks? Uh, That would be Frank Miller and Chuck Dixon.
0: Oh, no. No, no, no. This is before that. Dixon hadn't started on Batman yet. Franklin W. Dixon, the creator of the Hardy Boys. Oh. That is a reference to the Hardy Boys.
1: Uh Because Bruce is a boy
0: detective here.
1: Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's even nerdier than uh, Frank Miller and Jack Dixon.
0: They are investigating along with the sheriff and the local wheelchair bound doctor, Dr. Folk. Uh, Totally
1: not suspicious at all, that guy. Not at all suspicious.
0: Josh, you have the, the physical copy there. I don't know how the pages are numbered, but page 16. On the digital version. They're not. Damn. I probably should have had the digital up so I could give you a better cue. I I should have asked if you had had a print copy because there's something I specifically wanted to see on this. There's a couple of times, once on page 16 and once on page 30, where it seems like Dr. Falk is suddenly miscolored.
2: Yeah, for the most part he's colored pretty light. I was trying to, I mean it's it's got that human stain feel to it, but he's never they never really do the thing with the hair or the skin even in the big reveal where we get like a fully lit close up of him when Bruce is
0: confronting him at the end. It's still Fairly light, right? It was knowing the end was coming; those panels jumped out at me, and I kept going back and forth, like, "Which way is he miscolored?" Okay, the the big twist, which no. you know,
2: again, he's, he's mainly he's normally colored too light, but there are there are some random miscolorings for like skin tones, cars, background things throughout. That is just the the eighty nine process here.
0: I wasn't sure. I could have gone either way when it comes to some of the way some of these digital transfers work. The twist is, it turns out, for spoilers for a 30-ish year old comic, the guys who were being killed were all members of the Paladins of the Cross, this clan analog, and they, the last time they were together, they basically did a night ride and broke up a shantytown and killed a woman and the doctor is her son years later manipulating a local man who is suffering from mental illness to exacting his revenge. The whole thing is the doctor is the son of one of these clansmen and his black maid. The doctor is colored as pretty much Caucasian through the entire story, except in a couple of these random panels where suddenly he is miscolored as very dark skin. Throughout the whole thing, having seen those panels, I was like, wait, which is the miscoloring? Are they just getting it wrong, except in these couple of panels? Or are these couple of panels a strange mistake that is foreshadowing the twist at the end? Uh, I, I It was an odd thing. It was a bit of cognitive dissonance when I knew What was coming?
2: There are some issues with just the coloring in general in terms of some of the things that are faded or inconsistent. In some areas, it adds a nice touch because some of the kind of background jokes like the Confederate flags hanging or the roll tide or uh, written on the wall or things like that are very kind of faded and mute. But in other ones, it does throw you off like with that, um, that side profile panel, the one shot where he suddenly looks black
1: wait i i have to take a time out uh are you saying that the florida guy noticed the roll tide and the alabama graduate did not sorry Will. where 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 is this roll tide
2: it's when they're walking into the bar
1: ah aha aha it's a go tide go tide sorry go tide and 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 again, I think Mark Wade and/or the artist are showing they don't know what the fuck's going on. No one ever says "Go Tide."
2: No <laughs> one in the history of Alabama has ever said "Go Tide." I think you're mm-hmm. correct.
1: It is uh, it's "Roll Tide," roll motherfucking Tide. But that's really too much of an Auburn thing because you know we're the we're the dignified, stately older brother. Roll Tide is uh, is enough. But yeah, I it, It's it's right there. Uh, but that is a Go Tide. Uh, I, I will add some uh, some trivia here, looking at this bar scene and thinking about uh, cherished Alabama institutions. Uh, if you go to Tuscaloosa, the, the barbecue restaurant that you're supposed to go to is Dreamland. The locals will tell you go to Archibald's. Dreamland's is a, is a fun experience. My favorite sign on the wall in Dreamland, no farting. So if you go there, keep that butthole closed up tight. Well done, sir.
0: I do like the, the resolution, that the, the reveal that the doctor was behind this and that Bruce can't do anything about it because he never actually lifted a finger in this. But that Bruce has come back over and over to remind this guy. He haunts him years later. And that it shows an evolution of... Bruce's thinking that he's moved beyond that initial anger and he's now understanding the difference between justice and vengeance, which is something that Falk never understood. Falk is still content that what he did was the right thing to do and really seems to only regret it because
1: it's meant that Batman has continued to hound him for decades. Which is such a fitting end, right? It's, it's not the, the the typical justice that we see. It's not somebody, you know, being in jail or in Arkham. But it's this constant idea of, yeah, every year Batman is going to show up and give me grief. Every year until I die. Great, great closing moment.
0: So does anyone else have anything on this one?
1: No, but... I've got fucks. And so now I've got an O, a T, and a U out of place. This is this is a stumper. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll continue to figure that out. It's time to put Detective Comics annual number two on the big board.
0: So we are at a total of 72 stories on our list. Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 20 is Gothic, A Romance, from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 6 through 10. Number 40 is Favorite Things, from Legends of the Dark Knight, number 79. Number 60 is Superman, Speeding Bullets. And down at the bottom is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves.
1: Continuing to trudge on as the ass end of Batman. Okay. So, so my little
2: guy wants me to find that now because every time we're listening to this in the car he keeps hearing he hears oh, like every week he wants time, me to find out. this piece of crap for time him.
1: out time out this show is not for <laughs> fucking kids what are you doing man <laughs>
0: You know, I respect a parent's choice to let uh, their kids listen to me and will be idiots for an hour uh, every week.
1: All right, but uh I listen I, what,
0: to me. What? He listens to me being idiot all
2: week long. So it's all all right, all right.
1: what's 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 the kid's name? Alexander. Alexander. Thank you for listening. I, I don't know what the fuck your dad's doing, Alexander. But let me tell you, Superman and Batman versus Vampire Werewolves is a shit book, bro. It's terrible. I promise you, you're going to get that. You're going to be bored. You're going to be like, why the fuck am I reading this? Look, I promise you. I, you know, I, I agree. Adults are full of shit, right? But on this one, this one time, this one time, trust us, dude. It's a bad book. Read anything else on the list. 70 plus other books. You're going to have a better time. I promise you.
0: Okay. But now we, we need to add one more to the list. So where are we thinking here? I think we're we're in the top half. I think yeah. we're oh boy. My where do you have
2: Tower of Babel, which is another Mark Wade story? Ah, good good 18. Question. Tower, 18. Yeah, Tower okay, of Babel I, I don't think it's as good as Tower of Babel. No,
0: no. Helpful. Helpful, uh, this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we're probably somewhere in the upper 20s, lower 30s. Somewhere in that speaking of other detective comics, I mean 31 is the Doomsday book, the Detective Comics anniversary jam issue. I think it's better than that. I do too. Above that, is the, the one issue of the Brave and the Bold tie-in comic with Barda, Scott Free, and Martian Manhunter. I think we're still, we're, we're still above that. I don't think this beats Little Gotham at 26. I think Little Gotham remains just a ton of fun and full of a lot of, of heart and a lot of fun you know, inside baseball.
1: And I'll be goddamned if you're going to make me put this above Thrill Killer.
0: Okay, so then right now, so then we are at a point where we're in between. Thrill Killer is twenty-seven. Home Homewrecker's Life on Mars is thirty. So we've only got two books in between there. We've got That's how
1: numbers work.
0: Yep. We've got Batman <laughs> Reborn, the first arc of Batman and Robin, and Half an Evil, the O'Neill Adams, the Return of Two Face. It's better than Half an Evil.
2: I split the middle on those two. I don't think it's as good as the first Darker Batman and Robin.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that that looks like a good spot for me because it, it does have that... Batman and Robin has you know the first first real appearance of probably the most interesting Batman villain of the past decade, with the possible exception of the, the general concept of the Court of Owls, Professor Pig, and some incredible Frank Quitely art. Half an Evil is responsible for Two-Face still being a going concern, but in itself is a very Silver Age Two-Face story. Uh, so I Smash think, yeah. and
1: grab, Harvey. Smash and grab.
0: Oh, one other f- note before we completely move on beyond this story. At the back of the issue, it does have some fun who's who supplements uh, with the rogues, uh, various Batman rogues, all bringing in their crisis-related origins, some real gorgeous... Uh, uh, kevin mcguire joker and a mignola two-face that are really nice but that is the end of our first book book number two this week is grounded not all of grounded but grounded uh, part eight from superman volume one number seven ten Written by J. Michael Straczynski and Chris Roberson. Pencils by Eddie Barrows and Travel Foreman. Inks by J.P. Meyer and John Dell. Colors by Rod Reese and Dave McCaig. Lettered by John J. Hill. Edited by Matt Idelson and Will Moss. Cover dates June 2011. In this flashback, Batman and Superman return to the nation of Butran, where both of them had had previous adventures to help defend a monastery from an army regiment led by Vandal Savage. This story takes place as a sort of a side issue of a year-long Superman arc called Grounded that followed up the New Krypton arc where Superman had spent a year off planet. He returns and to get back in touch with humanity in America, he decides to walk across the country. This was a period where DC had gotten J. Michael Straczynski, legendary creator of Babylon 5, the writer behind various image projects, including Rising Stars, and a couple of very notable Marvel runs, specifically Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor, to write both Superman and Wonder Woman. But Straczynski is not exactly known for keeping a schedule, and so the books quickly fell behind and DC wound up grounded
2: and odyssey have a lot of interlude issues
0: oh yeah and they wound up getting other writers to basically work off of straczynski's outlines to get the damn books out on time just for the new 52 to happen and all of it to mean pretty much nothing
2: for me like that that looming new 52 is also kind of a big part of why I think this issue resonated for me and and why I remembered and wanted to choose it. Because I read this around the time it first came out. So for a long time after that, I considered this to be the last real Clark and Bruce story. Because so much of that dynamic was lost once New 52 launched in September of 2011, just a couple months after this. And because this is during Grounded, like the Superman is depressed story, it had a really great panel I always loved at the end um, that that has really stuck with me where Bruce reminds him that I've got the shadows covered. We need you out in the light, which I just always felt was a great commentary on the differences between these two characters. Yes, Superman can do dark, but, but Batman can't do light. And you know, I, I thought it was also kind of a, little bit of a knock on um, at the time like the upcoming how far away were we from man of steel starting to get some dark superman um
0: we're we're pretty darn close by this point
2: yeah the fact that you know everything's got to be darker um i
0: love the little resisted
2: comment that like superman doesn't work in the dark batman can do dark superman needs to be out in the light
0: think we're about a year. It's about a year and a half, so the the movie was almost assuredly in. We're getting those teaser trailers on line yeah, and stuff. It was definitely in development at that point. We're gonna just. Well, you were. We'll just start. You were not a fan of this issue. So
1: to give you a little bit uh, inside baseball on on the history of comics uh, XF. So I'm brought on board with Dan and and Matt from uh, WMQ may it rest in peace and you know we're brought on board with all of these uh all of these x-men weirdos at uh then xavier files and i get into the slack and we start talking we start talking ideas and i'm like for some reason i had thought about reading superman grounded for some damn reason or, or another and everybody all at once tells me it's a bad book don't read it don't write about it this is early part eight and um I'm not getting the the whole thing here, but from just an organizational perspective, this thing reads real strange because it's, it's these two old friends. They're reminiscing about this thing that happened to them and it's nothing but exposition. It would be if I talked to Matt, it's like, Matt, do you remember that episode last week where we talked about this and I basically read a transcript of the episode and it's just, it's weird. Like that's the only word I can, dis- I can think of when I'm, I'm trying to just wrap my brain around what happened. Like it's weird. We've got a villain who's described in like, I don't know, a panel or two. And then ultimately he doesn't matter. The idea that Bruce and Clark met before Bruce was Batman and before Clark was Superman, which is strange. We have Batman looking at what Clark can do and just being like, oh, all right, cool, whatever. Uh, Like he's not like, oh my God, this guy is, wow, I am scared to death. It's just, just, it's strange. And then they've got a lot as one word. And at that point I was like, I've had it. I've had it. I cannot continue to to deal with this book. Uh, I'm putting my foot down. In all fairness, Uh, Alexander, Alexander, let me tell you, bud, a lot, two words and don't trust the comic book that says otherwise.
0: In all fairness, that might have just been a lettering mistake because there are a few places in this book where the lettering is rushed and two words are run together. Page 14 has busy preparing as one word. And there's another similar error on page 18. So that might just be that. This book is a, a JMS related rush job. I, I also will have to say, or I have to say Will, the the, may, the the flashback of this story, travel foreman who did this, also did that issue of I am Batman that you can't stand the art on. Same artist. This, this. The art on this
2: is because we got two sets of artists. We have the current ones, which I think is a Pretty decent. Like, I like what Reyes and McKay do in terms of, like, different palettes. Although Reyes' work on New Mutants now is leaps and bounds. Like, he is on a whole nother level in his current work. Tremendous. But the face art by Foreman and Dell in the flashbacks really bothers me. Like, it's very clearly Jim Lee inspired. It's like some of the bad Marvel house art of the early 90s where people were just trying to throw extra crosshatches on everything, and it's (laughs) It's very heavily inked and it has that weird Jim Lee effect of making everyone look Asian, uh, which a lot of
0: the characters are Asian. So that doesn't really work bad for. What bugs me a little about this issue is something I was kind of concerned we might get, depending on how Chip Zdarsky took the night miniseries that he just started. It seems like Sadarsky is just telling a story, and he's not going to be paying a lot of attention to previous continuity, and he's just telling a story. In this story, Roberson goes out of his way to make a reference to every friggin' weird, obscure little Batman and Superman meeting story that I have ever read. And I've read them all because I'm me. Uh, Matt,
1: plug plug the episode we got coming up.
0: Right, because next week's episode is going to be about three three tellings of Batman and Superman's first meeting. Both of them are referenced right before the flashback begins. The time they met on the ship and the time with Magpie. But on top of that, this flashback is a reference to a one-shot called Superman Odyssey written and drawn by Graham Nolan, co-creator of Bane. That story... Does a little bit of this, but it does it in a really fun kind of way because it's the story of Clark encountering the daughter of basically the Dalai Lama. Because this is it, it's a, this is Tibet, this is Tibet, and this is the Dalai Lama, and they, they don't say it again for editorial reasons, political reasons, whatever. But this monastery is at the top of a mountain, and there's a set of stairs, and in the in Odyssey. Clark and this woman are walking up the stairs and as they're walking up and walking up, walking up, someone is walking down and walking down and walking down. And about halfway, they cross paths. And if you know Grant Millen's art, who drew a shit ton of detectives, it's clearly Bruce Wayne. And the shadow has the bat ears. They don't say anything. They just pass each other by. And when they get to the top of the mountain, there's a bunch of soldiers who are just knocked out, and the monks are, you know, dragging them away. And they go and talk to the head of the monastery, and he's, you know, yep, they came, but what this student of ours, he took care of them. Much anger in that man. And that's it. They never say Bruce Wayne. They never, but it's just this really subtle, fun little nod. And it's, it's a fun book, but that's. The the extent of it, but here it spins out into this entire story. There's a line about Bruce saying, "You know, our car broke down in Smallville once." That's from the Superman Batman Secret Files, uh, a lobe and Sale story. Bruce talking about studying with the Ten Eyed Men. That's from the Morrison run. There's talk of Nanda Parbat and. Hassan Isaba and Sirocco, which are characters from the Kerbusek Superman run. There's references to Vandal Savage's ancient run-ins with Batman during the time travel adventures in Return of Bruce Wayne. None of this is bad necessarily. And if you were doing a miniseries or something that was sort of stringing together all these stories and making a cohesive narrative, something like that Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries, That'd be fine. This is a 20 page comic and you're spending a whole lot of it. Hey, hey, the like four people out there that have read all these stories, you're going to get a kick out of this. But for everyone else, it's just adding a bunch of additional winkiness that didn't help move the story forward and was just kind of there.
2: It has a little clip show feel in uh, some of their dialogue and the uh, bookends for sure.
0: I will say the, I mean, I like Eddie Barrow's art and he does a a real, he draws a really nice Superman. I wish that he had gotten more of a chance to do more Superman. He's done plenty of Batman between the tiny and run a detective. And he did, it's done a ton of Tim Drake over the years in various places. But he draws a really big, broad, sort of Kurt Swanee in his proportions Superman. And he draws most of, if not all of Grounded that aren't fill-in issues or flashbacks. I think it's been a while, because yes, I did read Grounded. And Vandal Savage is there. And it's, it's, I mean, he's a logical villain for this, but he doesn't do much He's there, he's hunting for Nanda Parbat, and then he's sent running away with his tail between his legs. And he freaks out a little when all the bats show up, because that was new continuity at that point, that he and Bruce had run into each other repeatedly over the centuries. So let's, let's reference that right now.
1: But they were really big bats, Matt.
0: They, they were. They were really big freaking bats. I know I wouldn't want to run into those giant bats. Bats of extraordinary size. I don't believe they exist. This is only a 20-page story, so by comparison there isn't as much to talk about as either that double-sized annual or our next story. I was not in love with one bit of the narration. Maybe not narrate. No, it was some dialogue in the flashback with young Bruce justice about punishing evildoers, doers, justice about avenging a crime, but that could also be taken as that as young Bruce that Bruce himself will learn better over the years since I prefer a Batman who sees himself as not just a vending a crime, but preventing others from being the victims of that crime.
2: Yeah, that, I mean, that's how I read it. Um, I think in a lot of these stories, young Bruce, uh, learning humility is the trope that kind of never gets old. So I, I usually take in these, um, like, you know, Bruce and training stories that whatever he's mouthing off at the beginning is going to be wrong.
0: Do we have anything else on this one? Or are we, we good here?
1: I don't think I've got anything else. So that means it's time to put Superman 710 on the paperboard.
2: Y- y'all don't have to be gentle on my account. I, I am well aware that this is a book that I like, and that sometimes I like
0: books that aren't good. (laughs) You know, that, to to quote one of my favorite podcasts, or paraphrase, uh, in this case, the Bad Movie Podcast, We Hate Movies, it's okay to like a comic. But just because you like it do not mean it's good. And believe me, there are plenty of comics that I like, that I know flat out, these are bad comics, but they hit you at the right time, or... They're fun. This is why things like MST3K exist.
2: Yeah. And as someone who's a regular co- weekly contributor on an X-Men podcast, I mean, there are so many, so many bad X-Men comics that we love so much. Um mm-hmm. There, there's probably more bad than good in that run, but I, I love all, all the little garbage children of the atom anyway.
0: <laughs> yep. Well, I, I know you were talking about way down at the bottom. How, I mean, and this is down at the bottom. However, at least the bottom two stories on here are offensive. They are offensive, either completely offensive to your sensibility as a writer or contain material that is actively offensive the dark Knights will
1: oh okay that was bad but uh, look i know you tried to make some kind of excuse for the lettering but i swear to god that was done intentionally i i swear it um okay you have saved this from 72 73 or 74 Uh, alexander i'll tell you like buddy to buddy here i almost thought this was gonna this was gonna end up at the bottom of the of the list like your papa suggested a story that bad but i was thinking about it so like but, this this might need to be a conversation that you
0: and dad have um, and, and believe me i'm not i'm not saying this is gonna fall in that that bottom tier but i was not offended by this this did yes. not have the clumsy racism of blue the gray and the bat or, the or sheer, Batman
1: uh, shooting a, a gun.
0: Right. Or the sheer audacity to be a six issue miniseries where next to nothing happens that has <laughs> at least one of those panels that has the sexy dead victim thing that is so uncomfortable and bad in comics. Ugh, that, 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 was I, bad. that is unconscionable for a book that came out in the. I mean, it's unconscionable at any point, but particularly unconscionable. When it comes to a book that came out in the late aughts. So, that, that, so,
2: the next thing we're going to talk about is a much better story that does have some much more uncomfortable moments. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, oh yes. yeah. No, one, oh, oh, no yeah. one quote unquote
0: decks a tough hooker
2: in this one.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, hell yeah. We will get there. That, that That is an example, and we will discuss this in detail, of a writer who is known for. Being very liberal, trying to do something well-intentioned, and it not being particularly good at the time, uh, but by today's standards, is god-awful. Yeah, that, that is also going to be far lower than I thought anything by that creative team would wind up. But this one. So above that, Will, is Chasing Clay, that Batman 550 with the kelly jones and jh williams but with like a four-page exposition about the clay faces that was real bad yeah i think this is still better than that
1: oh that's that's harsh that's harsh but um above
0: that is the last batman story from batman 300 that one isn't bad it just a has a misleading title and b is just weird and doesn't really do much with what it's given now you're probably in the right area yeah i think this one is in between last batman story and chasing clay
1: we could move it up one spot (laughs) really you you put (laughs) it above last batman I would be okay with that
0: I, I think I, that look, puts it below Case of the Chemical Syndicate, the first Batman story
1: I'm good with that Our new number 69 no, no, Superman New number 7, seven. New number 7, oh, 69 oh, is Case oh, of the Chemical Syndicate
0: right. but That puts the first damn Batman it. story At 69
1: And nice I forgot how numbers work For a second there Damn it,
0: <laughs> damn it, damn it. Our final story of the night is Shaman from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers one through five. The writer is Denny O'Neill, pencils by Ed Hannigan, inks by John Beatty, colors by Richmond Lewis, letters by John Costanza, edited by Kevin Dooley and Andrew Helfer. Cover dates November of 1989 to March of 1990. Starting off in Bruce's final adventure before returning to Gotham. An adventure that brought him hunting a criminal in Alaska. This sees Bruce return to Gotham investigating cults, artifacts, mysterious murders, all of which connect to that final adventure. Ah, I was gonna talk. Legend of the Dark Knight number one had ah, variants.
2: And I
1: want
0: to know which color you have, Matt.
2: You probably have all four, but
0: which nowadays I have all four. At the time. I got the yellow one.
1: I have the yellow
0: one. Ah, no. I have this, the pink one. This is the first arc of Legends of the Dark Knight. Last week, we actually did the second arc on Legends of the Dark Knight, Gothic. I talked about it last week. I'll say it again here for those who might be just coming out of this episode. Legends was the first book that I started reading from the beginning. I got all of Shaman and the first part of Gothic at the same time and then read continuously from there. But this is... Oh, boy. This story has some problems. Because between the way indigenous peoples are portrayed, between the Latin American cult stuff, there's... All sorts of things in here. That's like, oh, Denny.
1: Oh. Uh, don't don't forget the uh, African American vernacular English uh, in there too. When that is the least of the book. Cities. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some
2: of this that reminds me of. It reminds me of some of the really early micro Green Arrow, in terms of you know it's the late '80s. So we're talking Giuliani hasn't even cleaned up Times Square yet, and. Um, you know, you're asking a bunch of middle-aged white guys to give voice and representation to disenfranchised minorities, and like always, a, a bad proposition. The reason why we don't do that anymore, there's the reason why we stopped doing that, and it's a shame that we only just stopped doing that, like
0: now, but uh, only about twenty minutes half ago. The time, we talked about this when we did uh, Days of Rage, that Huntress arc. It's the same problem here, and listen. Denny O'Neill. I've heard very few bad things about Denny O'Neill. People loved Denny O'Neill. The one time I met him, he was a real nice guy, and he always tried. He always tried, but nobody's got a a perfect batting average, and this one, this one is not one that that wound up in the win column for Denny.
2: Yeah, I read this about ten years ago. Um, I read this back in 2010 as well. And in general, I'm a huge fan of Denny O'Neill. I read this before I read year one. So I I kind of forgot how tied into some of that stuff it was. Nothing for, and I shouldn't say nothing, but it did not take me aback in 2010 the way it did in 2022, for sure. I, I had to sit down and stop for a minute and do the math on, okay, 1989. Like what grade was I in? And, like, I'm pretty sure I remember, like, in the year 1989, being in school and remember us, like, it being explained to us that, like, we say Native American, not Indian. But I guess they didn't, they hadn't gotten that message in that DC editorial yet.
0: And O'Neill is trying to do some stuff here with, you know, the way that white academia exploits Native peoples. But it's there in service of a guy hunting and killing the academics. It's not really given anything to reflect on. It's just, this guy is bad and thus he is killed. It also brutally kills the one character of color who is not one of the indigenous people in Alaska, the only character of color who's given any lines other than generic thug in Gotham is murdered brutally here as well. It, it's, yeah, oh boy. I mean, he's, he's pretty close to Fringed. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's pretty close. The, the first issue dances between the raindrops of year one. The back half of the first issue, there are panels that are Hannigan riffing on the Kelly panels. You see a tough hooker going to go to Selena Kyle panel. You see that whole Bruce's first night out done in one page. And you get a really nice Bruce suiting up for the first time bit here. Ed Hannigan does a, pr- a really nice job on the art in a lot of these
1: issues. The year one reference that stuck out to me the most was Gordon saying, "Oh." It's that guy on the bike.
2: I I liked the details Hannigan had on the old costume, right? Like making his early costume look like, like when he's taking it apart, you could tell that it's more like sweats and handmade, but only in the areas that like the cape covers or that like the belt cut, like, so around the edges that you don't see when the costume's on in whole, You know, he put these little details in, making it kind of still look homemade. And you get a bunch of shots of him when he's suiting up the first time that make it. The art
0: on those was very nice. There's also, it's a sequence that I'm kind of like, is this problematic or is this really cool? There's an indigenous sort of folktale. And I I didn't do the digging to determine if it's an actual folktale. I don't believe it is. And Hannigan does some really nice art for that, but it's in the style, and I'm trying to figure out, it's, it's sort of styled in a, a, a way that has these sort of indigenous people's art look to it. Now, I'm trying to figure out if that's appropriation or if it's homage and thus really, really nice or really problematic. I really hope
2: that Denny O'Neill made up the story because when the whole thing is about that, like, this is a story from their culture that shouldn't be told to white people. If you actually went out and dug deep for an authentic story to use and give out to like mainstream American readers that is in the story, not supposed to be for the white people that that would only make it worse.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's not. And let me say this. If I am ever traipsing about the world, and I find myself in mortal danger and I am saved by the power of native storytelling. And if they tell me the one thing is, Hey, uh, don't tell that magical story to anyone else. I'm going to be like, okay, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for saving my life. I will promise to do the one thing you told me not to do. Bruce though, eh, he just goes and blabs into a fucking academic and
0: it, it's not even seems like he struggled with it. It was just kind of like, you don't see him doing it. You don't even think about it. It's just suddenly like he's meeting this guy at a, a fundraiser afterwards. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, to, I, I told him the story. It's like, I'm reading. It's like,
1: wait, Bruce, the one thing they said was don't. don't the don't one thing. The, the one thing. And then he goes and tells it on television. And Bruce is like, oh, well, he's not telling that right. Oh, something's off with that because I told him that story. Jeez, come on. So one thing I did like
2: about this is reading it as, because it's not really a Bruce and training story. It's a Bruce year one story, but reading it as a companion to the Bruce and training stories is that it starts off with him, you know, having seeked out this great tracker and, you know, he's about to learn, you know, and, and then the guy just blam like in like the second or third page, like takes one to the head and is killed and is done, which Kind of as like, yes, it was like being in the Bruce in training with like these great masters mindset was kind of like a nice little, and and obviously that's not like intention and presentation of the story originally, but the way that we digested it today, um, it, it was a part that I, that I enjoyed the way it went with those.
0: Having read this, you know, shortly after it first came out and then probably once in the intervening years. I had forgotten how little of it was Bruce in training. I thought that was more of the first issue, which is why I kind of threw it in here. Also because it's an early Legends of the Dark Knight story and we like to do those. But yeah, it it, it really is a year one story more than anything else. Also, this is, I believe, and I would have to do a little more research, but I'm 90% 90 sure on this. The first time Santa Prisca shows up in a Batman story. I was going to ask about that. I figured you would know.
2: Um, But yeah, definitely, definitely had um, my ears tingling every time I read Santa
0: Prisca this time. It it was first introduced in the O'Neill Cowan question. That was where it made its first appearance. But that wouldn't have been long before this. So I have to imagine that this is, I can't think of another story that would have had Santa Prisca before that. And we're just two arcs away from Venom where Santa Prisca is heavily featured. Well, I
2: was reading this in the floppies. And so I got those pages where it's showing you like the other books coming out each month. So the question was around, I think, issue 29 to 32, like during these while we were reading them. So you're in like year three of Denny O'Neill's The Question as these are coming out.
0: So Santa Prisca had only been around for about a year because Santa Prisca appeared in the late teens, early 20s of The Question. So this is, yeah, this has got to be the first use of Santa Prisca in connection to Batman. And when we, speaking of Santa Prisca, we then also have this cult in Gotham of a vulture cult, the cult of Chubala, which comes from Santa Prisca. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. The, the, the opening Real of-
1: live and let die vibes here.
0: I, I was thinking when I, my note for this was beginning of issue two sacrifice this is some real temple of doom shit
2: <laughs> i have seen that same panel though in about like 20 teen issues of teen titans featuring brother blood oh yeah brother blood not that that's any better but it's
0: <laughs> the thing that i was gonna say is that, wait brother blood is an eastern european cult thing Oh, the the trappings of all of this is just 17 kinds of not good. And the fact that it winds up being, you know, the white man manipulating the native Santa Priscans who have made it to Gotham by using their superstitions. It's like, oh,
2: boy, that's... Painting his face and dancing in there.
1: Yeah,
2: it's the, the, the mask off, like face-painted ones are I think they were meant to look pathetic at the time like, but they are just there's extra layers of cringy
1: Cringy?
0: Oh yeah. Also another thing of note that I noted that really bugs me, the indigenous shaman and his, his granddaughter who saved Bruce they don't get names.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a She's good point. just calls him grandfather. Ooh.
0: And I mean, I, I got to the end and I would have to have doubled back and reread part one again. But I know Bruce never calls her by name when he goes back to Alaska. They don't get names. That's bad. That's bad. Even by 1989 standards, that's bad.
2: Yeah, I. I mean, so there were a lot of definitely like cringy things throughout this there are some I think I'd say one other nice note I had is because we read the detective annual from the same year and we do get a nice Harvey Harris reference in here he drops yes. he name drops Harvey Harris which made me smile I I had to just get upset at Hannigan over the art I love and so you would be you know this could be like your shark watch thing I don't know how many times you've seen or counted But when they show Bruce working out and it's always just a single bench press with an Olympic bar, like as his (laughs) workout thing, because this is such a common thing, even though it's silly. Um, And I love it every time that it's just I know Batman Inc. is another one that I reread recently and has it in there where he's just working out no shirt on with the single bench press. That's how he kind of stays in shape. I, you cannot convince me at any level that Bruce would have less than two plates on either side of that Olympic bar. The thing is drawn to have less than 200 pounds on it that Bruce is bench pressing, um, just counting those weights and a 45 pound standard bar. And you can't, there's no way he would ever do less than
0: 225. I refuse to, I refuse to accept that. I think we're going to have to add that to the watch because that, that is a really good call.
1: How much should Brent bra? watch?
0: There's also a cameo by Leslie Tompkins uh, an O'Neill creation. I was happy to see Leslie show up, although she doesn't get much play in here. But I was happy to see Leslie before, again, a really weirdly problematic panel where a woman commits violent suicide because she sees Batman. That was not good. A pregnant woman commits uh, violent suicide because oh, she's... Yeah.
1: Let me let me interrupt here. Uh, not that I, I disagree with you, you fine gentlemen. So this has been the first story that I've read where we have a more sadistic Batman, but I got the sense that it was Bruce playing up the sadistic side of Batman to scare the criminal element. And I have never gotten that feeling before in reading some of these other stories where he has a more sadistic side to him. So I think that's believing in what, you know, Denny O'Neill's doing, but two, I think that also came with this being in that year one period. Like you're, t- you're, you're seeing Bruce trying to make a name for the Batman amongst Gotham's CD or underside so I don't know if that read the same to anyone else but that was definitely the impression I got here where you know Bruce's or Batman's in these scenes where he's like I hope you make the hard choice I, I, I hope you you choose I hope you choose violence but again I got the sense that that was him playing the character of Batman yeah I,
2: I read that the same way too it did the, the little bit of extra violence reminded me a touch and completely unrelated, but a Batman Requiem where we see after Damien's death and he's just going out there. Look, just, he just wants to fucking just, just brawl with everyone because he's got no coping for that. But yeah, it it is definitely played up. And I have to assume that, you know, since theatrics is kind of mentioned by name, criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot that he was, he was kind of hamming it up at the start to build that, um, Bad reputation.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I love how Bruce dismisses that line at first. Like that, that was a, a nice touch. The mystery
0: of who is behind the Chubala cult. I like that you get to the end and you see all the, the data points that make it logical. But I would have liked to have spent a little more time with Carlton Fisk, the guy who was behind the cult because he appears on one page and then is sort of gone.
1: Carlton Fisk was the catcher. Wasn't this Carl Fisk? Yes. but Fuck the Red Sox. Anyway,
0: uh, I'm a Yankees boy. Always have been. So, yeah. So the the other plot, aside from the the Chubala cult thing, which is involved in the heroin trade, and it's a whole lot, is that the academic who went, who Bruce funded to go up and meet with the Otter Ridge tribe, the people that saved Bruce when he was up in Alaska and nearly froze to death. He brought these artifacts back after really abusing the the local indigenous population. And now someone is killing the people involved in the exhibit that he's created and bringing the artifacts back. And it turns out That it is Thomas Woodley, the guy who Bruce was involved in hunting at the beginning of this story. And again, to once again show how naive Bruce is at this point, when he is speaking to the granddaughter of the man who saved him. The the nameless granddaughter. The nameless granddaughter. She flat out says, you know, the story that he told to you and the other man. And Bruce doesn't think to say, oh, who is the other man? He later realizes, oh, it must have been Woodley. But that is a detail that the Batman that we know now would never have skipped over. But here, he doesn't even hear it.
2: He's just going on about his business. Yeah. And now I read this, obviously, before. So I knew from the beginning that this guy was coming back. But I can also clearly remember, like, reading this the first time. And I'm pretty sure the other man is in bold, even. Like, when she says it the first time, it's in, like, bold text. And it's like, yup,
0: he's going to be a killer later on. Yeah, it's like, how did, Bruce, listen. There's some cool stuff with Woodley, you know, using the bat mask from this, involved in this folktale in his own costuming to... Kill the people who were involved in this. O'Neill still writes a great Alfred, and there's some good, you know, Alfred banter throughout here. In the end, Woodley, who saw who'd been waiting to kill Bruce Wayne, who'd funded the exhibit, sees Bruce slipping out as Batman because we're pre-Batcave. We see some origin of the Batcave in here. And we get a, a battle between Batman and Woodley. As he's still Bruce, he doesn't even in costume. He's partially in disguise. A lot of Bruce in disguise in this. Very Sherlock Holmes. There's a lot in these five issues. And the two plots both wrap up satisfactorily, but not really well. And I don't know if this whole thing would have worked better as two distinct arcs that both had a little more room to breathe. Either you do the Bruce is up in Alaska, Bruce comes home, and then the whole arc is a bigger anthropological team and them all being knocked off and there being more of a mystery. Or the Chubala cult and Bruce investigating how this cult and the heroin trade all tie in together. But there's enough that neither felt completely ignored but neither felt completely fleshed out either you can't really tell which is the a which
2: is the b absolutely I, i did feel that it was nicely paced in terms of progressing the story because like you said there is a lot of stuff going on and i think each issue kind of gives you enough of the story to kind of keep you moving along with the plot um there were no dead issues kind of in the middle or, you know, I think it's definitely more of a modern problem where we see stories that have to be a certain number of issues and like they're paced nice. And then all of a sudden what should have been one issue gets dragged to three or what should have been two gets compressed to one. Um,
1: <laughs> the problem of so many mini series. Yeah, no, this is, there is definitely, th- <clears throat> honestly, this
0: might've just might've been able to use another issue to flesh it out. But it wasn't so packed or so decompressed either. The, the, an extra issue would have helped flesh out the mystery a little, but it wouldn't have hurt. The, the plot isn't hurt by this length.
2: It would have given you enough room to uh,
0: give the granddaughter a
2: name. Yes. <laughs>
0: oh, hells,
1: Nameless hells. granddaughter.
2: I will I- say I did like the final line. I did, um, when it kind of got to the end, bringing that story, the second um, story back around and having that beautiful, I think it's a half page panel of Batman standing out, looking over Gotham, where it repeats the, the second story after Bat blew the sickness away from Raven. He collected it and took it to the nest of vultures. Um, I thought that was beautifully drawn and colored at the end and, and was a nice kind of sticking point for this, this early story
1: now let me tell you this if uh, if dc and like the bat editorial brain trust could do a lucas on this story they would come in replace vulture with owls <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh they absolutely would you are yes. right uh, I- i'm glad that we aren't at that point because yeah i could just see going back and there being some obnoxious retcons with the court of owls if, if they would go back and alter some old stories and comic book continuity shouldn't work that way we, we don't need lucas
2: i know that it is not for everyone but i love that the current dc um basically like what am i trying to say that that dc's current um kind of like strategy is basically like whatever like don't even try to figure it out like there there is no fucking continuity like just go with it just go with it the damn book like
0: you know i'm fine with that cherry pick the continuity you know reference a story don't reference a
2: story give me good books i am enjoying more dc books now than i have in at least a decade so i am okay with it as well
1: Yeah, I'm I'm fine with the current like bat direction. Throw Ghost Baker in a pit and we're going to be good to go.
0: So uh, um, unless either of you gentlemen have anything
1: else? Uh, That means it's time to put Legends of the Dark Knight Shaman on the big board.
0: Oh, boy. Days of Rage, the Huntress story from a similar period with many of the same middle-aged white guys trying to do something and it not succeeding is down at 66.
1: All right, so this admittedly has some cringy bits, but I think overall
0: it's a better story, question mark? I think it's better than Days of Rage. Do we go much higher than the above All that right. is Master of the Future?
1: Which is not good. You know, you keep going up. Speedy you guys bullets. are low on the
2: golden age stuff. But uh, I mean, I, I like Robin the Boy Wonder from Detectives 38 as I don't have nearly as many negative things to say about that as.
1: Hey, I mean, hey it, we, we didn't have anything bad to say about it. It was just kind of, it's just there. like a lot what of the Golden Age the golden
0: stuff. Age,
2: the Golden Age is like, yeah.
0: That's the, yeah, that is usually the problem with the Golden Age. I mean, case the Gum of Syndicate isn't good. That is a shadow story that, that, that struck me as shadow fanfic that Bob, Bill Finger wrote that they just repurposed as Batman. But I think Robin the and Boy now Wonder. now we're here. Yeah. But I think Robin the Boy Wonder was better I'm looking forward to eventually doing uh, the monk, which was a two-parter. So you get, you know, a whole 16 pages to actually get a story. And I think that one will wind up nicely above a lot of the other golden age stuff or some of the issues of Batman, the like Batman number one that we would have to take as one At least a couple of those stories together because the two Joker stories in there that are technically separate stories, I would take as one piece anyway.
1: All right. So I think this is better than Bouncing Baby Boy at 56. And I am I am quite willing to keep walking up. What's Uh your ceiling, brother Matt?
0: I'm, I'm not sure how much higher than that I would go
1: It's got more substance to it than haunted
2: as I'm looking yeah things that come above that that you've covered prior to my listening um you've got faces mad men across the water like there's a couple legends of the dark Knights there in faces and blades I don't think any of those so, What this does good, it does better than most of these stories you're dancing around. But none of them are as problematic. Uh, And this one's problematic in multiple ways. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough balance.
0: I mean, I honestly think it probably, I would put it above Haunted. But I'm not sure if I would put it above Club of Heroes, above that. And Club of Heroes, that was a compromise because you really would have put it lower. I really would have put it Uh, higher. So we found a mid-range on that one.
1: Grant Morrison still gaining acceptance with half of this podcast. (laughs) Um, Or I guess a third of this podcast tonight. Yeah, I could could slot this in at uh, double nickels, 55. I think this is our new
0: 55.
2: I mean, and if you're going historically, not just for what the story does to the mythos, but setting the stage for almost what is it? Is it almost 20 years of Legends of the Dark Knights in this
0: original run? Um, Yeah, yeah. Legends ran, yeah, just about. I mean, two hundred and two twenties, two teens. I think it ended in the two teens. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the one that
2: kicked the door down for that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Denny. And it's I mean, for all I mean, Denny is one of the, the, the bat greats. As a writer, as an editor,
2: I love. It. I mention him as an editor a lot on our um, X Men podcast, where we talk about, you know, how tight and cohesive you have on the X line right now with what Jordan uh, D White is doing there and the um, impact Hickman had for the last couple of years, and that I mean, for my money, what they're doing is more cohesive and complimentary in storytelling across the line than anything I've seen since Denny O'Neill's bad office.
0: I, I could not agree with you more.
1: And so speak- as we, Oh, sorry to oh, interrupt. No, actually, uh, go I, I, I want to conclude my, uh, apparently my professional little playing career uh, because this is my first stump. I was, uh, I was broken. So I played chode twats. Fucks, butts, and dildo. And I could never get more than an O, a T, and a U out of place. So I was down to my last option. I did not want to absolutely concede defeat. So I morally conceded defeat, looked up the answer. Uh ponut. Ponut. And uh, Alexander, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you to ask your papa what ponut is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're going to have to go online to Urban Dictionary to, uh, to find out. I think as as mad as Googling right now. Uh, but it is P-O-N-U-T, P-O-N-U-T. And for everyone else, I'll just say it is, uh, it is apparently a thing in the, uh, the My Little Pony adult subculture. It's
0: bronies. It involves bronies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: Josh, speaking of your podcast. Plug yourself, plug your work, plug what you're doing. Sure. Um, so if, if you haven't heard us before, uh, I'm
2: on X's for podcast. We've got a group of anywhere from 12 to 18 contributors regularly, um, a diverse group that we cover, a number of uh, books pertaining to Mutants, Magic, and Marvel. So from the overall Marvel line. So we cover the new books each week. So you get a different group of us, different voices kind of interacting as we follow along um, so if you check out our episodes, you can find it anywhere, uh, find podcasts are disseminated um, X is for podcast, uh, you can catch us on Twitter at, at X is for podcast, you can find me on Twitter at asleep at the wheel, W E I L. And as the progressive Democrat running for US Senate in the state of Florida between now and November 8th, you can also find me across social media at wheel the number four US Senate and at joshwheel.org.
0: Josh.
1: Thank you for coming on the show tonight. Thank you for your patronage. It was great. It was absolutely great. And let me say this uh, a reminder to everyone, you have three ways to get onto the show. You can one uh pay us, you can two uh, be our friend or you can three date us and I'm happy to say, Joshua, you are now two out of those three. Congratulations and thanks again.
2: No one has to know what the second one is. <laughs>
0: Uh, secrets so that is it for this week next week super expert and writer at comics xf and women write about comics Corey mccurry stops by just in time for the launch of the new world's finest title to talk about three versions of the first batman superman meeting we'd like to thank our patreon backers dan Grote, june is dead long live jen joshua wheel zach Rabaroff, abigail hartbomb Asimov Fangirl and Tony Thornley for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Comics XF. Uh, and support the podcast on Patreon. You can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, most about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff that Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.